Hey guys, just a heads up on this one. We went long form because there was so much going on. We've got our normal movie review, plus the Super Bowl wrapping up, Donald Trump wanting to bring the Bible back to government schools potentially. So make sure you check out the timestamps in the show notes. You can hop around to the stuff that seems most interesting to you. Thanks again for listening. As always, looking forward to talking to you on this episode. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Pop Culture Quorum Deo podcast. I'm one of your regular hosts, Jeff Wright, and I'm here with Jared Moore. Jared, bud, you're my my regular co-conspirator on these things, and I always start out by asking how you're doing, so let's just get back into that that routine. How, how's life treating you right now, Jared? Doing well, man. I had a, had a good day. Went to a pastor's fellowship today. Um, it's Monday, and I'm off on Mondays, but I try to go to this pastor's fellowship and talked with a missionary who told me... Uh, he was a retired missionary. He told me a crazy, crazy story of getting, uh, you know, they made a wrong turn in North Africa and ended up in a communist country in the early 90s. And they were they were imprisoned. And it's just a crazy story. But they made it out. Wrong turn in an African. What did you say? In North Africa? I think it was North Africa. Okay. Um, I might be wrong, but they they made a wrong turn and evidently crossed a border into another country. And they were already up on it. There was no, there were no signs or nothing. It, it just, I mean, it's just a nightmare. Oh my word! Well, praise the Lord for those guys being in that part of the world and what God's doing over there. And you know, it it sounds like something the Lord would do to make those kind of circumstances a gateway to the to the gospel coming into a communist country. So, uh, mm-hmm. I'm I'm thankful for the Lord's provision of missionaries. Hey, um, yeah, it made me uh, realize my first world problems quite a bit. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So uh, if any of you guys out there listening are on the mission field or planning to go there, we, we send you our respect and thanks for, for your work in the gospel. Hey, um, you recommended a movie that uh, was really a, a strong recommendation this week, and I want to talk to you about it. But before we do that, we've got some segments to get to. Um, are you cool with me calling up our good buddy, Terry Felton for uh, a, a little conversation for what you're watching since, I mean, everybody we know was probably watching the Super Bowl last night. Yeah, absolutely. All right, man. Well, then let's get into what you watching, what you watching, what you watching. And while we're at it, let's get Felton on the phone. Terry Felton, man, I'm pretty sure that that Super Bowl debacle proved their thesis that the Super Bowl mm-hmm. is satanic. Uh, I got Jared here with me. We just kind of want to do a post <laughs> if I could speak a post mortem on uh, on what we saw just last night as we're recording. So Terry, just general thoughts on the Super Bowl. Rough game if you like offense. Great game if you're a defensive fan. That game would have probably been spectacular 30 years ago, but the Patriots win again. They get it done. And uh, Jeff, you had a theory about uh, the longevity of one Bill Belichick perhaps being black magic. And I think that's what happened to Sean McVay, Jared Goff, and the Rams offense last night uh, was black magic because the New England Patriots absolutely took them to school when it came to the uh, defensive game plan of the Patriots. And the rest of the Super Bowl was just pretty boring, wasn't it? At least from what we've uh, become uh, used to. Yeah, yeah, that, more I'd like to say on that front. But speaking of speaking of the you know the Patriots having 
LA's number. How sure are we that the Pats didn't tape their practice the way they did the Jets? Has anybody looked into this? Because I know Roger Goodell is not looking into it. <laughs> you trying every every way you can to explain it, aren't you, Jeff? Yeah, it's either black magic or cheating. Which with the <laughs> Patriots, I don't you know I don't have a preference. Jerry, what about you, man? I know that uh, that that you watched the Super Bowl. What, what were your thoughts on that one? I just thought you know the best quarterback won. Um, I mean, Jared Goff just wasn't up to par. I mean, you could tell. I mean, there's so many years difference between the two and the experience. And if he had made two or three more passes, that would have been a different game. Yeah, that's that's the big takeaway for me as well. Jared Goff just just wasn't up to the moment. Now, guys, tell me if I'm crazy. Did this not look like the most vulnerable Patriots team and and the one that was most likely to kind of throw the game away? Yeah, it kind of reminded me of uh, the Broncos Peyton Manning's final you know game. Okay, uh, in what ways? Well, I mean, do you remember that game? There was very little offense. It was a lot of According defense. To Cambridge Dictionary, Cambridge University. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what my phone thought we needed her to, to cameo for, but uh, she got in on that. That was awesome. According to Cambridge Dictionary, I, I'm glad I shared Jared, it off. There's no telling where that was going to go. Jared Moore waxing poetic about football, and the only the, the only thought that the phone could have was, this is the type of genius intellect and conversation that's had at Cambridge. Yes. I mean, I think we're I didn't all know there was a that. Cambridge Dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, Jared, back to your point. So, yeah, I remember that. You know, by that time, Peyton's arm was shot, and they were they were relying on running the ball and, and good D. Mm-hmm. But and I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just thinking like the Patriots look sloppier. They, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, on offense, they look sloppier. They made mistakes. They didn't look, you know, outside of Julian Edelman, they didn't look like the well-oiled machine we expect them to be in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And I just remember feeling like if Goff can do. 60% of what uh what he did in the regular season. This this game is is the Rams to take, but he, you know, he was probably 15% of what we came to expect from him in the regular season. Or do you think I'm nuts on that? Well, um yeah, I th- I think you're right. I think Gurley was a big factor. Whatever or, what or a non-factor. Yeah, what happened? I mean, he he's arguably he's arguably the best running back in the league for I mean, <laughs> Alvin Kamara. Well, yeah, but I mean for a good while the Bengals this season, man, he was amazing. No, he he um, was. And I, did they ever come out and say what the deal was with him? Because you remember, I felt so embarrassed for the sideline reporter because you like, hey, Gurley, he's going to be featured heavy in this game. And then it's just crickets. And eventually they brought her back out to be like, uh, I think somebody lied to me. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty yeah. embarrassing. The multiple reports from everyone was that Gurley was fine. And so I, I don't know if there's some tension between him and McVeigh. You know, you you really wonder because at the Super Bowl, I mean, that's the game where you lay everybody late should lay their ego down and say whatever I do to at the end of this game to have more points than our opponent. Don't care. And we want to win a championship. And quite honestly, the way the Patriots are playing defense, I feel like they were baiting the Rams into making it all about golf, where if you force fed Todd Gurley 25 times, if he was healthy. I really think it could have been a lot different game because if he's healthy, then I think he's the best offensive player on the field on either team oh, as, far as, sure. talent, as far as talent goes. For sure. So really, it makes no sense unless unless you literally you had Belichick take 
McVay to school that that much, or if the moment was too big for both McVay and for golf, and when when the plan wasn't working, adjustments weren't made. You know, New England came out against Kansas City in the first half and absolutely just wrecked them. But at halftime, they go in. Andy Reid, being a quality head coach, Terry, are you on, run, are you run. here seriously going to claim that Andy Reid adjusted his game plan? He absolutely did, Jeff. They hung 31 on the second half, in the I'm, second half. I'm falling off my stool right now. I attribute that entirely to, to Mahomes just deciding like, hey, guess what? I'm a video game character. Watch me do this. Okay, then weren't there things that the Rams did this year that Goff should have been able to step up to that? Oh, like yeah, I said, maybe, definitely. Maybe I mean, I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic here just because of Andy's reputation. But yeah. the thing that Goff, that Goff could have done from the regular season is turn to the left or right and hand the ball to one Todd Gurley. Absolutely. Yeah, if he was healthy, absolutely. And that's where, like, you know, it, it makes – it just makes no sense at all. And kudos to the Rams defense. They 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 did everything that needed to be done for them to win that game if yeah. their offense gives you an average performance. But Jeff, I'm wondering back to the Patriots, do you think they actually did, did they play possum a little bit this year? Did they did they play literally into the narrative that they wanted people to think that they were done, that they were vulnerable? Of New England's five losses this year, none of those teams made the playoffs. Look at you, Tennessee Titans, as one of them. Yeah. No, but, I, I think wins are too precious in the NFL, even for the Patriots, to do that. I, I do think they were vulnerable. I, I, I tell you why I really am convinced of that. They played Rob Gronkowski at safety. And that just blows my mind. I, I feel like, you know, for all of Belichick's, you know, ideas about innovation and using players out of position and all that, it, it, they really ended up looking foolish with the way that game ended up with Gronk back there. And and remember, they didn't want Gronk on the team this year. He had to basically threaten to retire to stay on the team. I really do think this was a vulnerable Patriots team, maybe more vulnerable than the one who, you know, Atlanta looked like they were going to put their foot on. And yet we just had a team that that wasn't up to, in, in whatever sense, in health, mental toughness or game plan or some combination of all three, just wasn't up to take advantage of it. It's a different game if the Saints are playing, isn't it? Oh, for sure. For if, sure. if the same New England Patriots show up that played last night, Drew Brees, that moment's not too big for him. Whatever complex scheme the Patriots are running, he and Sean Payton figure it out at some point, I think, and they are able to be more productive. Um, we literally saw the lowest combined scoring Super Bowl ever last night. Yeah, well, so I've got one theory, then I'm going to throw it to Jared for one more question, but you, you said that basically the the options are there's some kind of beef between Gurley and his coach, or his coach just got taken to the woodshed, right? Let me give you a third one. Have you ever heard of a voodoo doll? <laughs> <laughs> that somebody got a hold of one of Todd Gurley's beard hairs or something, and, you know, in his hoodie pockets... Belichick had that thing and was like rooting it in place, not letting the legs move. You know, um, that that's my operating theory right now. But uh, Jared, to, are there still witches in New England? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Tom Brady and uh, <laughs> Bill Belichick is the devil. <laughs> do you know how <laughs> do you know how he brought Tom Brady onto the team? He called him up one day and said, Tom, do you want to no, live deliciously? Uh -huh. And uh, for those of you who've seen The Witch, you'll get that reference. Um, Jared, seriously, though, to Terry's point, is this the most boring Super Bowl of your lifetime? 
I, I mean, I I like defensive football. I mean, it was boring. I mean, of, of my lifetime, I don't know that I've seen everyone, but um, it was up there, wasn't it? I thought the the final game of Manning, if it if it wasn't Manning, I think I would have been bored with that one. Yeah, Terry, same question. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely was, especially with what we are, uh, we've come accustomed to of this NFL of this year. Wasn't week eleven, week twelve? Rams and the Chiefs put up over a hundred points. It looked like a video game, yeah. and they're touting this is the new NFL. And then we get the lowest scoring um, NFL Super Bowl in history. One play in the red zone, guys, for the whole game. One play. And there weren't even decent commercials. What what was your favorite commercial coming out of the Super Bowl? I liked the 100 NFL myself. Totally uh, agree. Well, is that one that you'll go back and watch on YouTube later? I think I will just to figure out who everyone was. I already have. already watched okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Well, yes. I, I'm with you on that that was the best. But for me, you know, usually there's a couple, uh, you know, every year that I go back to YouTube and watch again. Right. Um, but even the even the like was it was it the Bud Light one that are usually pretty funny. Uh, the last one I saw ended with the dragon from Game of Thrones spit roasting everybody, and I was like, what? I mean, I just yeah, they, go ahead, sorry, Terry. And no, I was just gonna say it seemed like so many commercials this year. Instead of being funny or even trying to be funny, they all had a hidden message, or in some cases, not even a hidden message, and we couldn't even have fun with our advertisements. Yeah, I, look, I'll just tell you, we've mentioned this on the podcast before. I think anybody in creative in Hollywood right now is terrified every time they sit down to actually make a decision about programming. I think they're afraid of stepping into a landmine uh, of who they will offend and, you know, what they should have seen coming. But obviously they're they're human scum because they didn't see it. And like, that's why the, the show that followed the Super Bowl was just America's best whatever. And it... it you know, we it's not even rising to the level of like, hey, this is our best singer. It's just, hey, can you put your butt on your head? Hopefully that won't offend anybody and we're going to step back. So other than robots, the theme of all the advertising in my mind was, oh, yeah, There's just don't offend anybody. And if you're going to try to look like you're saying something, it definitely better be pro woman because that's, you know, that's the one safe place we can go. Um, otherwise... Yeah, just try not to step in on a landmine. Well, I did get rid of all my corn syrup today. Well, that's good, Jerry. I know that. I know <laughs> what what beer brewer is using corn syrup is probably a very significant factor for you, right? Yeah, absolutely. And after seeing commercial after commercial, I'm like, you know what? I've got to I've got to take a stand. And so my family and I, we went out in our backyard day and just dumped vats of corn syrup out in the backyard. Instead, <laughs> we're getting rid of it. You know, it's it's important to take a stand on the important issues of life. Absolutely. Speaking, speaking of that, did y'all catch that commercial about the uh, the the female football player? Yeah, it was like a, I did. Tony, a, Tony, yeah. Hey, more power to that woman. But if she's playing with the men, she was walking up the tunnel with on that commercial. God forbid she ever get tackled in the open field. Dude, I looked her up. I think she's a five foot six safety. If I'm not mistaken. What level is she playing on? College? Is it an AI? Uh, I think it's an NAIA school. Can you imagine her hitting, having to tackle a running back head on though? Like a two hundred and when I mean, those guys aren't little, she no. might be a hundred. 150, 60 pounds, but good grief. I can't imagine her being blocked by tight and stuff. Like, it's a cool story, I guess, or whatever, but I just can't help but think that physically this is going to end in some kind of tragedy. But anyway, yeah. I guess I'm digressing. 
Hey, the girl, uh, since you bring that up, the girl in the, the NFL 100 commercial, mm-hmm. I looked her up too, and she, uh, she started a women's uh, high school football league um, up in Utah. Okay. And um, it's that, I, see, I think that would be better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like have a women's NFL league. I mean, I would, right, I mean, right. with some of the talent and stuff out there, or maybe an arena football league, or, I mean, something beyond the, the horrendous, um, what is it? The pro uh, women, the bad league. Dude, I, I literally up. have no idea what you're talking about. Are you talking about the lingerie league? Lingerie league. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I, I'm with you. If if we're going to do this thing, if women are going to play football, let's just get them in a league of their own, no pun intended, because at some point, biology is just going to win and somebody's going to get devastated. I saw that U.S. powerlifting um, has banned transgendered women. So men transitioning into uh, feminine appearance anyway, they cannot compete as women in U.S. That is awesome. That's awesome. And maybe we're starting to see a little sanity. Maybe that's, you know, a crack in the door of sanity returning to sports on this subject. But I just remember watching, you know, it's kind of an inspiring commercial about that that woman, uh, Tony or whatever. But you just you can just tell, like, there's going to be bones broken and ligaments snapped at some point if she keeps she keeps putting herself in, in those environments. Can, mm-hmm. can you believe that we're the day after the Super Bowl and, and this is what we're actually talking about? Well, like, again, just the most boring up. Super Bowl of my life. And so you, you kind of look for something to say that was worth the time spent watching. Yeah, that, that's certainly part of it. But again, just the, you know, it's a combination of everything. And I think that's the, the fact the commercials left something to be desired coupled with the game. You know, I think it was everything. Uh, I didn't watch the halftime show, but I've heard, you know, all types of different stuff uh, about it, you know, and varying opinions. So I just think it was a combination of everything left <laughs> us, you know. <laughs> Adam, Adam Levine, man, he's talented, but. Man, I, I'm getting so tired of seeing women on my Facebook posting pictures of him with his shirt off. He looks like he's been in prison and got a bunch of jailhouse tats all over his body. <laughs> Jared, Jared, that unfollow button on on Facebook is your friend, man. Just you, you can stay friends. They don't need to know. You just don't follow them anymore. And I saw people. married women, man. Married women posting. You know, married women who are 20 years older than him or it just it drives me nuts when married women the same way with men, married men posting pictures of other women drives me insane. I saw people posting pictures of him with the shirts on with his shirt on commenting how that looks like their curtains or, <laughs> or particular pillows from uh, like p- particular sofa pillows from Target that they had purchased. Mm. Boys, I'm so. telling you, all this has been one more memorable Super Bowl. <laughs> Who knew that jailhouse tats were so attractive, man? I mean, hmm. the people getting jailhouse tats, Jared, you should have asked them. Um, Man, I mean, is there anything left to say other than that this was terrible? We all wasted our time and maybe we should just rethink the whole process of having a Super Bowl. I mean, last point, I'll let you actually answer the question, but. Apparently, the ratings were at a historic low on, on, on the broadcast. So it doesn't seem like it's just it's just us grousing. Did you uh, so at the very end, Belichick is uh, Belichick at the very end. They're interviewing him and, and he's holding his beautiful granddaughter and the, who he will the, later eat whole. 
person, the person interviewing him says, she, you're holding something special. He said, yeah, she is special. And then he goes right into the football, like telling how they won. I just thought it was hilarious because it was like, okay, one second of humanity from Bill Belichick, and that was it. That's too much, too. There's no humanity there. There's only the appearance. <laughs> he is Palpatine. <laughs> I think it was, a, uh, Jeff, to your question, I think it was a combination of everything. I think Patriots fatigue is real. I think the frustration with the way the NFC title game ended and then the way it was handled. I never heard one comment about New Orleans or about the penalty. I think the NFL probably threatened CBS with some ultimatum if you comment about the refs situation in New Orleans will will void your contract, your TV contract, or you'll not, you know, do another Super Bowl for two decades or something like that. No comment about that. I think it, it was all of those things that let that just fed into it. I think a lot of fans accepted that I'm cheering for the Rams, but I think somehow, some way, New England's just going to win. And I've seen this play out six times now. And um, that may be exactly what was in the minds of the L.A. Rams as well. Perhaps. I did enjoy the booing of Goodell at the end. When he yeah, the that was mic. funny. And hey, listen, if you're Roger Goodell, stay out of New Orleans. I mean, I know I've mentioned that already, but that dude just has no business being anywhere near the state of Louisiana. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, um, before we let Terry go, and thanks for your time here, Felton. Um, is anybody taking any joy in Anthony Davis telling the national media that he does not want to be traded to the Celtics and his dad clarifying that it's because of the way they missed over Isaiah Thomas? I, I, I don't even know what to say. That that sounds like such a lame excuse to try and force force the hand of one team or hold the hand of another. Uh, I I don't even know. Uh, I can't even wrap my mind around it. When he said he didn't want to go to Boston, I began to think about things, you know, about the Celtics themselves as a franchise, ownership, management, coaching, who he might, you know, play with or not want to play with. I never once thought, oh, it's because what they did with Isaiah Thomas a couple of years ago, which from a purely basketball standpoint, not that it was the right way to treat a guy who had given you everything. But from a, a management position, it looks like they made the right decision. Right, Jeff? Right, Jared? Well, you're talking to the guy who thinks Kyrie Irving is the most overrated player in the world. And, hmm. you know, one of one of the things that I do think is a blind spot with sports is that we say, oh, well, it's just sports or it's just business. So, Terry, I don't think you're wrong. On paper, I think most teams are going to want Kyrie Irving over Isaiah Thomas. I think one criticism we can offer, though, is that we're not talking about 2K rosters. We're talking about real human beings. And I do think that in the same way that that we shouldn't justify trash talk by saying, that's just what you do when you're playing a game. I don't think we should justify making, with Isaiah Thomas, what was a particularly bloodthirsty trade under the heading of it's just business. Or if we do... You know, I think it authorizes a, a version of Schadenfreude where we sit back and kind of delight to see that come back around, and, and someone say, you know what, I counted the human cost in my decision. I think I'm probably more okay with that than you are, Terry. Not that you're wrong, just I think for me, I'm, you know, where you're maybe, you know, you think that that's crazy. I'm probably 10% warmer to being like, maybe I would factor that in if I'm thinking about how my future employer would treat me. Does that make sense? Well, 
Well, certainly for, from a moral ethical standpoint, yes. And uh, forgive me if I didn't, you know, caveat my, my statements in that way. But from a, from a basketball standpoint, from the point in time when the trade happened till now, who has gotten more production on the basketball court? Yeah, okay, but then you know the counterpoint would be that Isaiah Thomas loved the franchise and played through injury and maybe messed himself up. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to acknowledge that he wanted to get a maximum contract, which mm-hmm. was also driving him back earlier. I get that. But the fact that he played, you know, basically right after his sister's death makes me think that it actually didn't mean something to him for to to play for Boston. And yeah. I I, again, I get it. I get that most people, again, if we're doing a fantasy trade or we're doing 2K trades, we're going to want Kyrie over Isaiah Thomas. But I I am kind of, I guess I'm glad that there's this natural consequence that maybe GMs are now going to have to start thinking, well, what does this say to the next person when, when I make a move like this? Because I think that's a more humane, that leads to a more humane sports environment. Uh, only, only GMs that actually have control, though. There are leagues where it's not run by GMs, to be honest. It's run by the players. And is this reason given legit for Anthony Davis, or is this just another way to get out to L.A.? And he's manipulating it. I think it works both ways, player and management. Well, yeah, definitely. I'm I'm with you on, you know, both of them have, you know, both parties have issues there. I, I will tell you how we'll know. Or, or at least what will swing the balance of whether or not this becomes one of the criteria GMs think through. If Kawhi Leonard leaves Toronto and mentions that, hey, DeMar was their soldier and they threw him to the curb the first time it was advantageous to him. If you have mm-hmm. if you have Anthony Davis say it and then you have Kawhi Leonard say it as they're switching teams as you know, some of the most coveted uh, players available either through free agency or the market. I do think you'll see a sea change in the NBA. Mm. Uh, if the Lakers get Davis, are they just going to play two on five? I mean, because basically they're going to give up their whole roster, right? I mean, Jared, are you available for a 30-day contract? Yes. I, mean, I know you started that new hospital chaplaincy thing. I didn't know if it would, you know, if, if commuting from L.A. to Crossville would be a problem. The three of us could go and fill in the other three spots. I think the three of us should go and fill in the other three spots. So here, here's my legitimate answer to that question, Terry. I think if they get AD there, which, by the way, if you're Dell Dimps and you flip AD to the Lakers before July, I really do think that's not only a fireable offense, but your owners who would have had to approve it deserve to lose their franchise. Uh, that team needs more more teams bidding on Anthony Davis. And that trade that the Lakers are pushing right now will be available to them in July. They have no incentive in my mind to to go ahead and trade Anthony Davis right now. Tell him to go sit at his beach house in L.A. and wait till July, and we'll figure things out then if you're the Pelicans. Um, but if if this does go through, you're going to see the Knicks buy out DeAndre Jordan. They're going to buy out Wes Matthews. And those people, I think, will just head to the West Coast. Mm. Yeah, and the Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irvin to the Knicks talk is going to continue to get traction. And if they were to somehow in their uh, potential tanking, if they're doing that, would land the number one pick. Uh, New York, New York could be a happening basketball town again. You know, I guess I guess this raises a, a question for me. Do we think the Knicks, who have now just literally swept the decks, 
are all of a sudden operating as an intelligent front office in that, A, they know there are structural problems with Chris Tapp's Porzingis, and so health's always going to be an issue, and or B, they've heard through channels that Katie and Kyrie are definitely planning on coming, and therefore they just swept the deck clean to bring them in? Or do you think they're operating on hubris and saying, we're New York, we will be one of the destinations for insert free agent's name, and we're just going to go ahead and line up the chairs for that to become reality. Both of you, if you had to pick one of those, they've become incredibly smart as a front office, or they're just arrogantly deluded. Which one would you pick if if somebody put a gun to your head? Go ahead, Jared. Go ahead, Terry. Well, I'll give you another option. They're just the Knicks, and they're making moves. And this was just the move they made. They don't have a plan. They've not been told anything. And right now, they look like they're geniuses. Um, Come July, they may not have any of these options. And they're sitting there looking uh, with a blank stare into a mirror. Well, for me, that falls under my B option. And that's what I feel like their trajectory and their track record Mm -hmm. makes me conclude. That they have just stupidly done this thing. (laughs) And let me just tell you, as Boston is finding out right now, if you are banking on anything coherent in terms of thinking from Kyrie Irving, let me remind you that up until recently, he was adamantly apparently a flat earther. That's true. I, I, I would not trust Kyrie Irving to successfully pick up and bring back a, a pepperoni pizza to my house for a party. And I, I mean, I realize that this is a hot take. I, don't get me wrong. But Kyrie is just, to me anyway, he appears to be an instable, unstable individual, not mentally. I don't think he's a crazy person. I just think he's given to flights of fancy. And even if his agent called you and said he definitely wants to be on the Knicks next year, you might as well tie that to you know two quarters and see if somebody will give you a Coke in exchange for it. <laughs> And Jeff, where did uh, Kyrie play his one season of college ball? He he's a Dukeish player. Yeah. He, okay. Okay. He, he was there for a cup of coffee. Um, <laughs> so, and and then here's the other question on this side. So, if we assume that for some reason they think Kyrie and Durant are coming, can we seriously picture no matter no matter how bad things are with Draymond Green that Durant is going to look at an empty roster with himself? Uh, is it Kevin Knox that that's their rookie from this yeah. year? Yeah, uh, Triner, Triner, Trainer as well. Yeah, He's- and possibly Kyrie, and and think that's better than living in the Bay Area next to Silicon Valley, where you're going to get a chance to not only win more rings but open up this new stadium that's supposed to be like a spaceship come to Earth, mm-hmm. or that Kyrie is going to look around after you know, hopefully a moment of clarity and see Jason Tatum and Al Horford. And, uh, you know, even if you don't think that Gordon Hayward is going to get back to to what he was before the injury, uh, he's going to look at, you know, a Tatum and a Marcus Smart, excuse me, not Tatum, uh, Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart and say, yeah, an empty roster with Katie, Kevin Knox and the kid that nobody can pronounce the name of is a better situation than Boston. Because, If Kyrie makes a move like that, he's truly, truly on a different planet from the rest of us. And I can't see KD, who is so conscious about wanting to build a brand and be an entrepreneur and and have a career outside of basketball. I can't see him leaving Silicon Valley for an empty Knicks roster. Even with the egos and attitudes that we hear and know athletes have, 
Because Durant, Durant, um, he was so vilified for leaving OKC to go chase the title and win them at Golden State. And again, does that MO stick with him so much that he can't stand it and wants to go and try and do it somewhere else? Does, you know, does that go away if he goes to the Knicks with Kyrie? I mean, we've seen him playing with Russell Westbrook. What's substantially different? Yeah, uh, I'm not. I'm not arguing that. The only difference is it's in the East. It might be easier to get to titles, but or to the championship uh, series. But LeBron went eight years in a row, right, from the East. Yeah. And let me just tell you, the funnest version of this, if you are someone like me who's not a big fan of Kyrie Irving, the funnest version of this is actually letting them end up in New York together. The guy who has been, you know, called for multiple years now a snake because he left Oklahoma City to join up with the Golden State Warriors who just got done beating him, who's trying to rebuild his legacy, along with the guy who wanted to get out from under LeBron's shadow. You put those two guys together and make a nucleus out of it, that is going to be more drama than any soap opera that has ever been viewed by a housewife in all of history. Mm-hmm. Mm. Jared, I know we, we kind of pushed you out there. Uh, are, were you unaware of Kyrie's suspicions about a flat earth? Yeah, I was unaware, man. No idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he's finally left that off or not, but for a while he was making public statements that left everybody going, yeah, this dude thinks the earth is flat. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, all right. I said we wouldn't keep Terry all night. We went, I guess, pretty long on this. Terry, last thing, man, uh, you're – you know, your foreboding about the Vols National Signing Day is, is looking like it's coming true, man. You know, you the early signing period has really taken some of the fun out of the whole National Signing Day, the first uh, Wednesday in February, mm-hmm. and even the, the <laughs> excuse me, the buildup to it. So um, Darnell Wright sounding positive for the Vols. Looks like Henry or Henry Toto is uh, now probably, he's probably third trailing Washington and Alabama. So if you're a Vol fan, you want him to stay out West and go play for the Huskies probably. And uh, Chris Russell, something's, Happened there where it looks like Tennessee's off the board. So if Tennessee just gets Darnell right, that's still a really, really good class. And you've really addressed uh, Tennessee's O-line needs moving forward and, you know, hopefully continue to build on it. That if I start receiver in, there's a lot of questions on would he flip or not. Probably unlikely. UT may, because they may have a scholarship or two to, to kind of play with it. They may. Um, look at a guy who may be a little less ha- uh, herald, uh, heralded as a prospect. So, you know. Uh, the uh, Butch Jones special. Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see if it is because uh, these guys who are running the program now apparently know how to coach. A uh, guy, Trayvon Flowers, was a guy they plucked last minute at the end of last year, and he was blowing up into a quality young safety in his first year before injuries beset him, and he you know, kind of regressed a little bit. So, so we'll see. Um, I, I would love if they are able to keep a uh, scholarship or two open to either look graduate transfer stuff um, later in the spring or be able to sign a full class next year um, because I think there's a lot of quality in state and in the Southeast as there always is, but especially in state next year for 2020. So, Hey, you get a five-star offensive tackle on signing day um, and, and you're a five and seven team. That's a win to go along with the other prospects they have. So I'm, I, I'm good with this, this one and hopefully Tennessee will be trending up um, even more moving forward. Well, underappreciated aspect of that early signing day um, is that I think if Tennessee brought in the hall, you know, Wednesday on national signing day, that 
that they brought in on early signing day, we would be over the moon. Yes. But the fact that it's, you know, Wright has looked like he's locked in for a while now, and we were we were all willing to believe that to Otowo and mm-hmm. Russell were going to show up. I think it probably changes the narrative in a way that's not fair to the staff. Yep, um, I would agree. The The other thing is just that I think they will have to use scholarships on a couple – you know, uh, graduate transfer linebackers. I, I've been looking through the portal, just seeing who's available, and I've, I've got to believe they're doing the same thing because I'm just convinced that linebacking core actually needs live bodies. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll see what they do. It'll be interesting. UT men's basketball team still number one. Yeah, baby, go big orange. All right, Jared, you want to tell Terry thanks and bye bye for us. Yeah, thank you, Terry. Appreciate you coming on, man. Appreciate your episode on uh, Sports Corbin Deo. And I'm right. looking forward to the you know the next 11 months, man, of those updates. And right. I think we're it'll be interesting to see what you guys do during the drought. You know? Oh, we'll we'll take care of the drought, my friend. Don't you worry about that. We will <laughs> we will walk brothers and sisters through that that summer sports drought that many many of us go through. My plan we'll, we'll is get through it. My plan is to take cheap shots at baseball. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Terry. Thanks for tuning in, man. We appreciate you joining us. Thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. Take care. See you, man. All right. Always good to talk to Terry. That's always an enjoyable experience. Um, Jared, anything else you've been watching other than the Super Bowl? Yeah, interestingly, man, I I put on, um, after the Super Bowl last night, put on the movie I, Robot. Mm. And uh, with Will Smith. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always love that movie, but the way that we approach pop culture um, basically ruined that movie for me. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of would just buckle up and watch it and enjoy it. But that movie is basically arguing for postmodernism. Like it's the the thing that separates humans from robots is not logic, but emotion. And um, it, it was just... Uh, <laughs> It's just interesting. Um, I mean, it it aggravated me what they were arguing. So yeah, that's unfortunate. You know that that movie is based on source material that's been adapted a number of times, and uh, I, I think in every one of them, it's pushing towards a a low view of of humanity every time. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, man. It uh, it's it's frustrating, but you know, I I still, I mean, I still like it. I'll still return to it here and there. And we also watched this uh, this crazy documentary on Netflix, um, Abducted in Plain Sight. Okay, I, I've heard about this from our mutual friend Derek. So this is the one where a little girl is kidnapped, eventually makes her way back home, and then is kidnapped again. Am I right on that? Yes. Oh my gosh, dude. I'm, I mean, that is... <laughs> That is the worst nightmare uh, that that I think a parent can have. I mean, I don't know if maybe somebody out there is listening and they've lost a child and never knew what happened to the child. But, man, to lose your child is enough. She comes back and then to to lose her again. I can't imagine the emotional raking over the coals that would that would represent. Well, what's crazy, man, is that the fact that she's abducted twice. Well, hey, let me let me stop real quick. Do we need to do any kind of spoiler warning here? No. Okay. Okay. But, Press but on. The, the fact that she's abducted twice may be the least craziest thing in that story. Oh my! So you think it's worth the emotional scarring of having to like put yourself in the shoes of parents who had their child kidnapped? I think so. Yes. Okay. Well, because it is. Uh, it's it's the craziest story I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. Well, uh, I mean, you and Derek, uh, it, your powers combined is. You know, Captain Documentary Recommenders, I guess that's enough to push me over the edge. I love a good documentary. And 
I hadn't been willing to take the plunge on this one. Have you watched any of the Fire Festival documentaries? I haven't, but w- one second, dude. Please do me a favor. All right, so just set a camera up on, like, you and Christy sit beside each other when you watch this documentary that I'm telling you to watch. Y'all just set a camera up, not on the TV, but on y'all two watching this. And um, I would love to just watch that video of y'all's <laughs> facial expressions as, as y'all endure and receive this documentary. Man, I, I may be able to do that. I may be able to make that happen. I'm not joking, dude. I'm dead serious. I would sit for an hour and just hear that audio in the background and watch y'all's faces because I should have videotaped my wife. I told her as we were watching, I was like, I wish I just had a camera on you <laughs> watching this thing. No kidding. Dude, I'm so intrigued right now. Let's end this episode. I'm going to go watch that documentary. <laughs> I said I can't. My wife's asleep, but maybe I, maybe I can wake her up and tell her. Jared said this had to happen. She'll totally be cool with that. <laughs> Hey, tell me, tell me about this fire one that you're talking about. Well, the, the fire festival was this end all be all uh, music festival party that was supposed to go down. Except the guy putting it together uh, was basically a con man trying to fake it till he made it, and uh, it, it became an epic disaster. Like think about Woodstock with the mud and the slime and the health risks, but not transcendent music, you know? Oh, wow. And so Netflix and Hulu both released documentaries. And it seems like the people who I talk to about it, you know, enjoying documentaries are talking about the the Ted Bundy one that's on Netflix. The one that you and Derek just, you know, we just got in talking about. Uh, what was it? Abducted? Abducted in plain sight. And then the the fire festival documentaries. Like everybody I know who's interested in pop culture seems to be fascinated by one set of those documentaries right now. So I don't know I don't know what's in them. I you know, it's party atmosphere stuff for the fire festival. So I'm assuming, you know, women acting um maybe not wearing enough clothes or men acting inappropriately towards women. I'm I'm, I'm assuming all that's gonna be in there, but I've just heard it that they're fascinating. Hmm. I mean, I think I saw I saw a preview briefly for that for the for what you're talking about. Like ten, he promised, uh, I think in the preview it said that he promised like yachts and um, I don't know houses or cabins, and it was tents and what hot dogs or something. Yeah, I mean crazy <laughs> stuff. And uh, apparently, Ja Rule was supposed to be one of the headliners, which I guess is not a warning sign to some people the way it would be for me. But uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> blaze on fire festival. Um, Place on Fire Festival. Yeah. And by that, I mean, <laughs> apparently it was a dumpster fire. So that the, they, they forgot to add the dumpster to the fire uh, when, they were, when they were promoting it. So uh, we watched a Netflix original called Velvet Buzzsaw. Have you seen this? I've seen the previews for it, but Gyllenhaal looks so weird in the preview. I just hadn't watched it. It's a super weird movie. <laughs> super <laughs> weird. Did you see a movie that Jake Gyllenhaal did called Nightcrawler, where he was this kind of scuzzy photographer? Ah, some of it. Some of it vaguely familiar. Yeah, well, so, you know, it, it was sort of a surprise hit the year it came out. And uh, it, it's the same creative minds behind Nightcrawler that are behind Velvet Buzzsaw. And, and as much as I can remember... My wife and I liked Nightcrawler because of Hall's performance. I can't remember if there's nudity, sexual stuff. Anybody who's listening to this who, who thinks they may want to check it out, just go read the plugged-in reviews or, or figure out why it had the rating it had before you dive in. But, you know, we had a positive impression of the story and the acting from Nightcrawler. So we were like, yeah, Velvet Buzzsaw. Um, it is such a mixed bag, man. I don't know that Jake Gyllenhaal has ever done a better job as an actor. 
Oh, wow. <clears throat> and there's a ton of great actors in the movie. So, Renee Russo's in it. Tony Collette's in it. Uh, the the girl who played the love interest in Stranger Things. I can't remember her name, but um, the, the young lady. Uh, she's in it. There's, there's just a, there's a ton of talent in the thing. And it is really captivating. But I don't think I liked it. it it's kind of like... Not in terms of scares or moodiness, but it's kind of like hereditary in that way, that the whole time I was watching it, I was riveted. And as soon as it went off, my wife and I looked at each other and we were like, uh, do we hate that movie? <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's clearly made by somebody who hates uh, or uh, I'm misreading it, but I think it's made by somebody who hates uh, people involved in the art scene in Los Angeles. They're all painted as superficial and... Uh, condescending and overinflated. And it's supposed to be a scary movie, but I didn't really find anything all that scary about it. It was kind of rehashed ideas that are supposed to provide the scares. And I thought they were just warmed over. So mm. really beautiful, well acted, totally unoriginal. And uh, yeah, I just can't say I, I cared for it, but I did watch it. I'm glad. I think I'm glad I avoided it. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't commend it to you. I'd go back and watch that documentary another time before you start, <laughs> start old Velvet Buzzsaw up. All right, man. Anything else on what you've been watching? Um, oh, I watched The Mist. Oh man, that's and, a uh, that's a bleak one. It is, and you know what, man? I don't think I had ever seen that thing all the way through. Oh gosh, then you were in for a very unpleasant surprise. I was. I remember hating the ending, but I don't think I ever saw the ending. Um, and so this ending, I didn't care much for either. But it was better than the one I thought originally happened. Well, the uh, the movie came out in 2007. I hope we didn't spoil that for anybody. But, you know, if you hadn't seen it 12 years later, I don't I don't know what we can do for you. But if you're going to watch it, be prepared. There is some bleakness at the end of that movie. Yeah, that that crazy Bible lady, though, I would love to <clears throat> talk about her sometime. Well, my problem with that, um, The Mist is originally, I think, a short story by Stephen King, and it got eventually spun out into, I think they published it as a book, although it began life as a shorter, as a short story. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's just better than the movie. Um, and it's better with that character in particular. She is such a thin stereotype of evangelical boogeyman. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to even to countenance her as anything other than just that a thin stereotype of evangelical boogeyman. It's one of the, you know people say that some some critics of King say that he doesn't do a great job developing characters. Mm -hmm. I've never I've never really felt that in what you know I've read quite a bit of his output and I've watched I guess pretty much everything that's ever been adapted into a movie. I've mm -hmm. never really found him to be a you know a poor developer of characters, but she's terrible and and again yeah. super thin. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. It, and, it's uh, like Westboro dropped into that supermarket, right? And yeah, she's the only one with a religious perspective. It's, yeah, it's just it's it's simplistic and not representative of of reality uh, mm -hmm. in in a way that's pretty egregious for Stephen King's works. Oh yeah, yeah, I agree. All right, well, guys, that is going to wrap up. What you watching? What you watching? What you watching? Let's get into. So sorry to interrupt. And for this week, so sorry to interrupt, man. We've really got one topic to to discuss. Jared, do you want to mention? You want to introduce this for us? Yeah, the question came up. I can't. I don't even remember how it came up um, with concerning uh, Trump mentioned about wanting the Bible in public schools more, something along those lines, and. 
um, there was a pastor uh, acquaintance of mine on Facebook who posted that he would be against that. And uh, I thought I would uh, interact with you some on that. Yeah, so the issue, I think, actually originated in Trump's Twitter account, surprise, surprise, <laughs> because he tweeted that he would he would be in favor of a return to a Bible education class um, in, in America's government school system. Does that sound right? Yeah. And yeah, you reached out to me and said X, Y, Z. And I was like, man, I don't I don't know that we see eye to eye on this. And off we were to the races. Mm-hmm. Um, let's bring that into the podcast a little bit here. So tell me tell me your perspective on the idea of the Bible being taught in America's government school systems. OK, so I believe that there is a basically a godless worldview that undergirds public school education because basically God's subjects, you know, this is God's creations is God's world and to teach reading, writing, arithmetic, and the very subjects that are taught as if God does not exist. And we're, uh, we're together on that. Now, we are yeah. very thankful for the thoughtful and committed Christian educators and administrators who are working yes. in the government school system. And I, I would say, yeah, even we need more Christian school, I mean, cre- more Christians in public education. I would be, I mean, I've got a church full of them, and I'm thankful for their um, testimony. But I, I'm what I'm saying is, is the government kind of delimits what you're able to, as far as teaching sets boundaries that you, you're not supposed to cross as a teacher. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we're, we're definitely thankful for them being able to share their testimony when given the opportunity to share Christ and to mold kids. And I mean, all that, I believe that's a form of ministry. Um, yeah. I think of, I think of my friends who are in the public school system as something like missionaries yeah. in, in a hostile culture. And I'm, I'm deeply thankful for them. And, and, uh, just respect that they have pursued that vocational calling. So while we are very critical of the government school system as it's constructed on the broad scale, we are very thankful for the Christians who are using their their gifts to try to be, um, I, I mean, I guess I'll just say a light of sanity in an increasingly insane, dark context. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so the system, there is a, a worldview that undergirds the system, and it's not the Christian worldview. Um, and so I believe that worldview is already present in the public school and thus introducing the Bible, um, I believe, is a net win that the positives outweigh the negatives. And um, the reason why I believe that is because, um, one, I think the Bible is a um, it's a book about human flourishing. It's not just the, the church flourishing, but the Bible tells us how to flourish in God's creation. Um, so, for example, you think of how marriage is defined in the Bible. One man, one woman, covenantly bound to one another for life. I think that is overall a good—I think that that is the best definition of marriage possible. And thus, societies that adopt that view of marriage, it is of the greatest benefit concerning human flourishing in that society. Um, so you're not making a pragmatic argument that, like, the Bible should be obeyed because it brings good things, mm-hmm. but you're noting that— it's not surprising that honoring the Lord as the creator and the designer of the human frame, that honoring him tends to work out with these happy consequences. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying that God has designed creation in such a way that the closer you get to God's ideal presented in the Bible, the more human societies will flourish. Um, and the further you get from that, the more destruction you bring to societies. 
And so you think of the definition of marriage, if there is one discussed in public schools, what is it? And it's not the biblical ideal. Um, and, and thus, I believe it is uh, destructive to, um, well, it's destructive to America. So I, so I see the Bible introducing, introducing the Bible would be a, a positive in that way concerning human flourishing. Um, two, of course, I'm against the Bible being taught wrongly. And I, I realize we can't trust the government to teach it rightly. I mean, um, I would go so far as to say we can trust the government to teach it incorrectly. Okay. The thing is, um, you, like you, you were talking about several of the folks you view as missionaries. Imagine if those missionaries that are in the public school system were permitted to teach it rightly um, or to teach it more rightly than they are permitted right now. Like I, I view the trade-off. I realize that it means that people will teach it wrongly, but there will also be people who, who do teach it rightly. And uh, I think the trade-off there is more positive than negative. Um, three, I believe the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God, uses the Bible to transform hearts. Um, I mean, imagine being able to teach the gospel overtly uh, in the public school system. Um, I mean, that 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 just seems that seems like a win win. Imagine being able to send kids home uh, to read the Book of Romans. Um, I mean, I know I know people. I can remember. Oh, I can't remember the guy's name. He's over twenty schemes. Maybe it's Mez. Mez McConnell. That sounds right. It's uh, Mez is definitely right. I think McConnell is his last name, but yeah, he, he was he runs he, twenty schemes. He was converted reading Romans, um, and he said that the way the reason why he was converted is because see he was raised um, he was raised by an abusive I think it was abusive stepmom maybe, and um, he was taught. Uh, he knew he knew in his heart that he was sinful, that he was wicked. But he was taught by every all his people who were counseling him that he was a good person, but just had bad things that happened to him. And he said, I knew that I was not a good person. And um, he was converted just reading Romans. And I mean, there there's numerous examples in church history of people who have come to Christ. I, I want to say that that uh, I think of Martin Luther reading the Bible. I think of John Calvin. Um, I mean, those are, those are two huge ones. Uh, Zwingli. Um, I mean, the Reformation was started because men read the Bible, and um, they they were they were under false teaching, but the Holy Spirit used the Bible um, to transform them. And um, so again, I think I think uh, I realize that you know those are those are amazing examples, and I realize that there are going to be you think of how people who have mishandled the Bible and have led many astray, and and the negatives that have come with that. Um, and then finally, I realize that if the Bible is is taught that other religions will need to be brought in as well, or at least permitted. It, I mean, it may not be in our neck of the woods, Jeff, because of the you know how much Christianity, evangelical Christianity, dominates our community, our communities. Um, but in certain cities and things like that, there'll be need, other religions will need to be probably um, permitted to be taught as well. I, I think the Bible will overcome. The Bible will hold up uh, again, and that goes back to the the negative worldview that is already present there. That's already permitted. We right now we only allow one worldview. Let's. I, I'd be. I'd rather have them all in there. Um, than to have just one, because the one that's in there is godless. At least let the truth get in there and show how all these are a farce. Well, I mean, I guess there's some stuff I agree with there, Jared. Um, there's some I obviously agree with. The Word of God is powerful to save, and so when it's heard, it's it has 
been imbued with God's you know power to to bring life out of death. But I don't get how you make the leap to the Bible could be taught in a way that respects the author's intention, which is where the power of God uh, is found towards conversion in a government school system. Because what Trump is advocating for is is you know dropping the Bible into a godless secular system that's going to remain and be the controlling motif that dominates anything that's being taught. It's secularism that drives, you know, every aspect of the humanities curriculum, everything of the science curriculum, everything of the social studies curriculum. It's going to be what drives any study that would be attempted of the Bible. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it would be wonderful for uh, for teachers who are believers to be freed up to preach the gospel. But there's no conceivable world where a teacher can, in Bible study class, say, Jesus Christ is Lord, repent and believe. That That's never going to happen in the kind of school system that we have in our country today. And if it did happen, that person, even in, I think, our neck of the woods, would very quickly you know, face the wrath of the ACLU, hostile, militant, uh, atheistic parents in the in the community who know that the government school system is leveraged against, you know, presenting the truth claims of Scripture uh, as they as they, you know, self-evidently show themselves. I mean, I get what you're saying in that, you know, the Bible, again, is uniquely powerful in getting people mm-hmm. to uh, in, in God's purposes to save. But the, every example you just read were not people who were sitting in environments where scorn was being heaped on the Bible, which is exactly what would immediately be the case in any of these government school Bible curriculum products. And so even if you're a believing teacher and you try to mitigate that, the approach to the Bible is not going to be one that countenances the Bible as a legitimate truth claim or even raises that possibility. It would it would be, you know, the curriculum that would be a guide to the teachers that the students would have to walk through would be written with scorn and derision. Most of the teachers who taught it would be teaching it very happy to heap scorn and derision on the Bible and would use the Bible itself to teach the denigration of the Bible by the spirit of the age that dominates the government school system. So yes, in a world where the Bible could get an honest hearing and be treated with respect, I, I, I would be in favor of that. But there's no conceivable version of that that we get. I mean, you think about Zwingli, Luther, the people you mentioned, they came to the text deeply deceived and even in broken religious systems. But the root of those religious systems was still a high view, corrupted though it may have been and, and improperly practiced, of the things of God, including the Bible. That mm. That's completely antithetical to what would happen in one of these proposed government school curriculums. I think it would be even worse for the people who wanted to say good things on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and His presentation of Himself in Scripture because these kids would be having that juxtaposed with however many hours in the week their brains are being filled with this toxic evaluation of the Bible that, uh, again, a secular government school system is going to dictate uh, would be the official approach to the Bible. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting. I, you know, I guess it would depend on who's writing the curriculum. But the truth is, I mean, you, you know, as well as I do that I mean, D.C. is the most theologically liberal city in the U.S., you know. Um, yeah, well, and the counter is, has always been Texas. You know, Texas school systems basically are a check because of the huge 
I guess, just purchasing power Texas represents. You know, Texas has kind of tried to put their foot on the brakes of some of the worst stuff that's come through government school system curriculum. But Texas is, you know, in that that corridor from Dallas to Austin, San Antonio, Houston, that corridor is turning rapidly blue and is being filled with progressives. And that bulwark is going to be lost very soon, I expect, if it's not already lost. There's just no version of our current school system where I think that the Bible would be given not just respect, but an honest hearing. You know, we we live in a world where there are, there are people, tenured professors in, um, you know, peer-reviewed journals calling for the ending of the study of the classics because they're too compromised by white privilege. That environment is not, that kind of scholastic environment is not going to let the gospel be heard in any way that isn't destructive, toxic, and critical to the nth degree. Mm. i tell you what I think this would end up being. Mm-hmm. I think that teaching the Bible in government school systems as they're currently construed would look something like Jeroboam's deception of Israel. That, you know, Jeroboam, so thinking like First Kings 12, Jeroboam says, oh, we need a temple. We'll get two temples. We'll put them at Dan and Beersheba. Oh, we need um, we need gods to worship. Cool. We'll worship the God of Israel, but we'll we'll do it in the form of these graven images. And it will have the form of, you know, he had the form of revealed religion in uh, in the northern kingdom in that time. But the expression of it was so corrupt that it that it was pagan, idolatrous and rebellious. You know, he, he may have told them, yeah, you're you're worshiping the God who came out of who, who led Israel out of Egypt. But those of us who actually know what the Bible has to say realize, no, no, he is leading them into spiritual adultery. And I think exactly what would happen is, yeah, they may get to sit down and read the book of Romans. They would have the form of studying the Bible, but the heart of the thing would be idolatrous, corrupted, wicked, and would end up robbing um, robbing the opportunity to, to hear the gospel that you and I, I think both would love to see more of in the in the public excuse me in the government school system. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. You know, I'm again it, sir. I'm again it. I, I, if if I had the keys to the kingdom on this, I had the levers of a government school system. We would be on a rapid scale to excuse me a rapid pace to scale back government education, privatize it widely, um, still offer free education, but do it through charitable means and donations and whatnot. I, I think that basically our government school system is a net loss for our populace at this point. And if I could if I could do anything on behalf of my neighbors, I would privatize that thing, return it to the control of local communities and uh, just scrap the project. I, I figured. I figured. I mean, I mean, I would. I would as well. I would figure. I. I want. I get really frustrated because we vote in our local school board, and their hands are tied. Mm-hmm. You know, they're tied by the state, and they're tied by DC. There. I mean, the reason why I don't have my kids in the public school system is because I have no, literally zero say so. And the most liberal city in America is the one who's deciding what my kid is taught in Crossville, Tennessee, and. um you know, I at least I have a choice mm-hmm. and um, and I would need to, you know, I've got them in. We homeschooled for several years and then we have them in uh, the classical Christian school up here in Crossville, Crossville Christian School and uh, very good school. The kids are learning a lot. Um, but if I had them in public school, I'd have to reteach them when they got home. 
And, um, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather homeschool. I'd rather just teach them rightly the first time. Well, who has, who has the bulk of time available that you would need to detoxify and then reeducate your children? I mean, don't get me wrong. I know a lot of our listeners are making the choice to send their kids to public school. I don't know how they do this because when I look at the Wright's family profile, you know, you send your kids off to the government school from eight to three every day. The the worldview being pumped down their you know their their uh, throats is secular humanism, and mm-hmm. you know, pretty much the most godless version we've seen in human history. And uh, we're supposed to fix that when they get home. I mean, just in raw hours, it seems like something my family couldn't pull off. And I don't, I don't know how these other families do it. I know we wouldn't send missionaries this way. You know, we wouldn't send the missionaries uh, into a hostile country and say, you know, go let the religious leaders of that community teach you for eight to 10 hours a day. And then we'll come back in, in the time allotted to dinner, bedtime, homework. We'll, you know, we'll retrain you religiously and, and how to how to approach this culture. It, it would be a catastrophic missionary strategy. Yeah, no, that's true. I think there's this assumption that these subjects are neutral, but there's a worldview that permeates and is interwoven with everything that's taught. Either either God owns all things and holds all things together, or he doesn't. Either Christ is Lord or he's not. And um, Yeah, there's suppose- no education that is not discipleship. Every form of education from technical training at a diesel mechanic school to, you know, the highest brow philosophy is attempting to disciple you in the name of some uh, some exalted teacher. And that is going to be the exalted, overblown man, or it's going to be Jesus Christ, who is actually in reality Lord of all. And there's no alternative. You're being discipled to follow Christ or you're being discipled to follow fallen man. Right. You know, uh, parents, if I if my kids were in public school, what I would do is constantly hammer into them um, the necessary presuppositions concerning God made everything. He made it for his glory. And the only way to rightly understand God's world is to understand God's word. And so I would constantly be trying to reinforce that. But I would have to be very familiar with the curriculum that's being taught and um, in order to be able to because because what it what it does, friends, is as kids grow up, they're going to they're going to have this wall of things they believe, you know, and and um, the thing they're going to have. I mean, if your your kids are in that school school system where they're being taught another worldview, um, there's going to be holes um, concerning what they believe that's not in the Bible. The these, uh, I guess, untrue bricks in the wall. You know, you're going to have Bible bricks and you're going to have untrue bricks that are built into the same wall of their worldview. And you're going to have to slowly take the, help them take those bricks out and replace it with biblical truth. And it's just going to be this constant rethinking and rehashing. And, and uh, you're, you're going to have to have a, a pretty solid, I mean, it can be done. I, I mean, we know, I mean, I, I want to say that Tim Challies has his kids up in Canada in the public school system. And, um, you know, they, that they decide to go that route. Well, I think and I would love to read, read about some, that. I'd love to read some good strategies for that, because, like I said, when I look at my family dynamics, I can't even conceive of how we would do it. Even in, in your model of like replacing bricks, as soon as you send them back, man, the, the school system has more time to add more false bricks. So then you've got yeah. to take them out, replace them with better. I'm not saying it can't be done. It's just I can't conceive of how it can be done. And I would love to read someone say, actually, here's how you do it. So if you're listening to this and you're like, 
you people have no conception. You're absolutely right. At least I don't. And I would love to have my horizons broadened. So please reach out to us, pccdpod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. And listener, the the main thing is if 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 you think that your kids going to church on Sunday morning is going to be enough to counteract this worldview that they're being taught 35 hours a week. Um, and that's just if they don't watch TV, because TV ain't teaching them a godly worldview either, unless they're, you know, watching something overtly Christian. Um, you know, it, it it's going to take a lot more discipleship than what happens for three hours on Sunday. Look, man, um, if, if they're going to the church every time the doors are open, yeah, it's not enough just in raw hours. Yeah, we believe yeah. in the power of the Word of God. Um, but we also understand the way God designed men to be shaped by their teachers. Again, everything is discipleship. All education is discipleship. And if your lion's share, apart from a special providential work of God, which, by the way, what parent wants to, to hang the fate of their child's soul on a unique miracle of God? Unless God providentially intervenes, they are going to be successfully discipled in the image of the one who has set the curriculum. And I mean, that's just human frame. So here's what I'm going to say to to add to Jared's uh, encouragement there. You can't see these things neutral as neutral. Either Jesus right. Christ is Lord or he's not. And, and the educational system is going to be built on one of those fundamental truths. Jesus Christ is Lord or he's not. And they're going to try to build a structure on top of that. You can only not assume these things are neutral. You can't not have a plan. So mm-hmm. if if you're looking and saying, I believe the Lord has led my family to choose the government school as part of the discipleship of my child, you have the freedom to do this as a parent. But let me encourage you as a fellow brother, you cannot do that banking on your school system not being as bad as some others. Um, the, the fact that your school's teacher is a believer and the administrator is a believer and they keep the Bible on their desk, you are, you are going to find yourself in horrible circumstances most of the time if you don't have a specific game plan for how you're going to combat the false discipleship of the government school system with positive discipleship in the image, uh, in, in, in the name of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, cultivating the image of God in your child. You, you have mm-hmm. to have a strategic game plan and execute it. Right. And that, that's, we're just talking about the system. We're, we haven't even got into the other children and the classes being there's too many students in a classroom. The, the power um, of plausibility structures when everyone around you thinks yeah. that your, you know, your family's faith is not only something that's weird and strange, but possibly dangerous. Like mm-hmm. just the idea that your children will find the faith, the faith plausible is hard to cultivate. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the evolutionary worldview that is forced to be taught, not to mention the transgender um, ideology that is forced to be taught um, or at, at the very least permitted. Uh, I mean, even in country settings, if a student self-identifies as the opposite sex, they have to be identified by the teacher in that class by whatever name they desire to be called um, and how that affects your children to see that and to be involved in that. and. Um, I just saw where New New Jersey school system um, is starting to teach uh, LGBTQ history as one of the classes. Yeah. So again, guys, you, you may you may have 
different conclusions than we're drawing, let, let us encourage you. You got to have a game plan. And if you've got one that um, that you feel confident in and that the Lord is blessing, I, I, I seriously mean this. Reach out to me and let me know, and, and I will commend it on the next episode. I want to see these things because it seems so impossible to my mind. I would be delighted to be proven wrong. Yeah, and it'd be helpful definitely for, I mean, the overall majority of Christians in this country have their children in public school. And, and so, you know, I know that, that huh, many want to plan, and so we could, could definitely use it. So thank you, folks. Yeah. All right, man. Well, we're going to put uh, an end to... So sorry to interrupt. And that means it is now time to pull the curtain on Chronicle. You ready to get started on that one, Jared? Yes, sir. Excuse me, had a had a frog in my throat there. But we are uh, excited to to cover this movie. Um, not to get ahead of ourselves, Jared. But when you suggested this one, I thought, eh, that'd be fine. But man, I'm delighted that that we watched this movie uh, this week. So let me give the IMDb synopsis, and uh, from there we'll we'll go into spoiler territory, conscience warning, things like that. Okay. IMDb describes Chronicle, which came out in 2012. Uh, the story is three high school friends gain superpowers after making an incredible discovery underground. Soon they find their lives spinning out of control and their bond tested as they embrace their darker sides. This was directed by Josh Trank, written by Max Landis. It stars Dane DeHaan, Alex Russell, and a before he was an A-lister, Michael B. Jordan. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys, that is that's the last of the non-spoiler content on this episode. So if you press on, uh, we assume that you're okay with having plot details spoiled. If you haven't seen this one and you think you'd like to watch it before we break it down, let me encourage you, uh, again, not to get too far ahead, but I think Jared and I would say this movie is worth watching. Go ahead and press pause. Go check this movie out. Come back and resume the episode. We'll be here waiting for you when you get back. Mm-hmm. All right, Jared. So let's start with conscience warning about uh, Chronicle. It's got a PG-13 rating. Um, what what would you tell people to be aware of in terms of conscience issues? Um, I think that there there's language. These are teenage boys. I think they, they use their uh, powers to, um, I think they blow some skirts up at one point on girls walking by. And um, there is a, there's a scene where one of the boys, you know, is... Uh, supposed to be having a, a sexual encounter with a girl at a party, and um, there, there's nothing seen. But um, she comes running out. You know, everybody's got their clothes on, but they go in to see him, and he's thrown up on himself, and his pants are down. He's he's, he's in his undies, um, but it doesn't show anything. But I think those are the major, and there there is some there's some pretty heavy violence and some scary scenes. Yeah, so the Motion Picture Association said they gave it the rating they did because of intense action and violence, thematic material, some language, sexual content, and teen drinking. And so what Jared just told you is is pretty much right on. There's no nudity, although there is some lewd conduct by these guys towards some young ladies. Um, this kid hooking up with a girl at a party uh, in an effort to lose his virginity is seen as a noble goal and something to be celebrated. And we see just some of the... Um, you know, people referencing it and then, then some of the fallout of the, um, you know, failure to to accomplish his ends there. Um, otherwise, the movie is, is pretty much a, a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. All right, Jared. So uh, anything that stands out about this movie before we jump into it? Anything you want to highlight about production or acting or anything like that? Um, I really enjoyed uh, Michael B. Jordan's character. Uh, 
I don't know. He's really likable. I mean, this is, this reminds me of like me, you, and Terry. You know, growing up, buddies goofing off, um, not a care in the world. You know, they kind of captured the curiousness of teenagers, the adolescence. I thought they did a, a good job, kind of explaining even the social dynamic of high school, fitting in, rough home lives, things that are going on behind the scenes in all of our lives that. Um, kids at school don't understand and and don't realize and um I don't I don't know I thought I just thought it was well done it was realistic you know except for the supernatural stuff right but yeah um it got teenage boys right yeah and in high school and all that um even even the frustration of you know I, it's definitely plausible and people have lived this where you've got you know you've got a former firefighter um who's retired because of medical issues, bad back, I think is what they say. Um who so he's used to saving the day, but his wife is dying. He cannot save her, so he takes out his aggression. He tries to drink his sorrows away and he takes out his aggression on his son. You know, he can't he can't save her, so he's gonna, you know, take out his anger on his son. And uh it's it it made me feel empathy for everyone involved. I mean, that's a wicked mentality, but everybody's got to pursue a gospel, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very much the case, uh, you know, up front with this movie that that people are pursuing a telos, an, an end for which they live. I, I'm with you, man. I I really enjoyed this movie. I thought that I just am really surprised that I didn't see this movie when it came out because it should have been right in my wheelhouse. I love superhero stuff. I feel like this movie did realistic, and I realize that's a that's a stretchy term, but we've seen a lot of big budget movies aiming at a realistic take on superhero mythology. Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan did it better than anybody else. Um, I, I would say this is the second best, and I know it's going to alienate some of the, our listeners, but this is what Zack Snyder wishes he could rise to when he's trying to give <laughs> us a, a realistic take on Superman or something along those lines. Um, it, it's it, We're all still waiting for Dean DeHaan to break out as a big star, uh, but mm-hmm. it is fun to catch Michael B. Jordan before he's an A-lister. Um, yeah. And then just the last thing is that the director, Josh Trank, uh, you know, went on to do the second Fantastic Four adaptation, the one where Michael B. Jordan plays Johnny uh, Johnny Storm, and it basically shut his career down. So he's not done anything since that Fantastic Four movie back in the uh, the late, excuse me, the early 2010s. And uh, it's just a shame because this movie proves he had a lot in him. Similar deal with Max Landis. He's not written anything of note. Um, well, I mean, he did Bright, the, the Will Smith movie for Netflix. But other than that, he's not really, he's not really scaled the heights either. And so this is sort of a, this is this wonderful confluence of young acting talent and what may end up being the best of these director and writer talents uh, converging at the same time. I think, uh, I think Landis wrote a sequel to this, um, but they didn't, Fox didn't like it. And so it kind of stalled stalled in the water. I mean, you know, this thing had like a $12 million budget and made 10 times that at the box office. So they're going to try to do a sequel sometime, I think. Well, you know, the last thing I saw, and of course, this is coming from Wikipedia, so trust it at your your discretion. But as of 2013, in July, uh, Landis and Trank said they're no longer working on the sequel, new writers and uh, whatnot have been brought in to take over. And I guess the last bit of news was from 2014, uh, which was that Fox had hired Jack Stanley to write the script. And so 
Man, I'm just telling you, this was, I think, a wonderful confluence that is not to be repeated. Hey, is Jack, uh, oh, who is he? Is Where do I know him from? Jared, I don't know where you would know Jack Stanley from. He's listed on IMDb under uh, Jack Stanley the Eighth because apparently that's a pretty common name. He, he's listed as a writer for Chronicle 2. Uh, a movie called Possession, a love story that has no no information attached to it, and another called Sweetheart, which has nothing attached to it. So I don't I don't really know him from anywhere. It's interesting they would just hand him this <laughs> the script or write us something. Yeah, yeah. I, I I'm curious if that just means it's in his hands till they decide they want to do something with it, if ever. But let's get into our analysis here. So what we do on the Pop Culture Quorum Day podcast is we look at how the stories lesser creators tell matches up against the great stories told by the creator and sustainer of all things. And he told his story in four acts. There was creation. God created all things good. He watched creation uh, move into rebellion against his goodness, and it fell into sin and the death that sin brings. Uh, but God was committed to his purposes, and so he chose to redeem. He sent his perfect servant, his son Jesus, who was fully God, fully man, accomplished all that God had given him to do, and died on the cross for the sins of his people, rose triumphantly from the grave, and is even now reigning at the right hand of his Father, where all things are being brought into subjection to him. What's going to happen from that process is a glorification. A new world will be born better than the one that was lost in the fall. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to go through Chronicle and figure out how it compares on the headings of creation, fall, redemption, glorification. Jared, take it away with creation. What is creational goodness in the world of Chronicle? Um, there, there really is a clear good and clear evil. I, I think, I think part of what I liked about this movie is it gets, uh, I mean, it gets sin right. It gets, I mean, it doesn't call it sin, but it gets. You know, I guess it is that superhero trope, right, that we're familiar with in comic books. With great power comes great responsibility. Um, I don't think they actually use that terminology, right? But that's kind of what they're getting at. And um, I think I think that's helpful. But I, I do think the family, um, the family of the main guy who was well, the most powerful superhero. So he's Andrew, played again and, by Dane DeHaan, is what I'm going to... I'm going to say pronouncing his name. It's double A there at the end, so it might be Dean DeHane, but I think it's Dean DeHaan. Anyway, he plays Andrew. plays Andrew. He's a kid that's bullied at home and bullied at school. And, you know, I I mean, I I resonate with that. I think most kids resonate with that. And, you know, this might be an excursus, man, but I'm not bullying. Bullying is not good. Um, But I do think the Lord uses these things as you. As you get over older, um, it prepares you to live in a, a sinful world. Um, I, and again, I'm not saying that bullying is good, but I, I got, that's one thing I'm looking at my kids um, who are in the Christian school and who are in much smaller classes who are, are monitored pretty well. That that's something I have wondered about: is are they going to? Is this? They're not going to live in a Christian bubble um, when they get out into the world. They're going to have to be in vocations. They're going to have to be in. They're going to have to be more in the world. I'm just curious. I just wonder um, how they'll take bullying when they're 18, 19, 20 years old, having never experienced it in their life. Um, Yeah. I mean, bullying's a tricky issue. Every parent instinctually wants to protect their kid from it, I think. But then mm -hmm. there is something about facing that kind of challenge that leaves you. 
uh, you know, if you survive, it leaves you better able to face conflict in the future. And, you know, some of the stuff that I think gets labeled bullying today is positive, negative peer feedback. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. this is this is a reduction to the absurd. So I'm just going to own that up front. But the kid who is regularly on the, the playground eating his own boogers, when he hears the laughter of his peers for that, he's being told something that kind of helps him adjust to the world. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think we would be quick to label that bullying. And and again, I'm I'm, I'm reducing down to the plainest terms possible. But, you know, I remember being made fun of for coming to, to school with my hair super slicked down every every morning and eventually it got through my head that I shouldn't wear my hair that way and you know net positive for me so I stopped <laughs> doing it um, some of that stuff isn't quite bullying so much as it is just social integration mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I, I've I've won I've just wondered about that there and I mean in in most cases now I realize kids today there there's some who are going so far as taking their own lives. Um, so there's some severe bullying out there for sure. And um, I don't want to mitigate that. I mean, it's hard to even parse yeah. out where, you know, where helpful correction from peers starts, but yeah. I just don't want to throw away the possibility that some of it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing it's, uh, you know, my kids, I, this is going to sound odd, but I want them to have to answer at a young age what they do, how they're supposed to respond when someone's mean to them. Um, or how they're supposed to respond when someone is unjust towards them, if that if that makes sense. I guess I guess what I'm saying is is you learn your you learn whether or not you've got courage whenever you're um, you know it's one thing for me to teach them courage. It's another thing for them to have to actually practice it before they're 18 years old. Um, if if I'm and again I'm not I don't know. I guess I guess sports would be a, a good way. Maybe I need to put them in combat sport. <laughs> Well, in terms of creational goodness here, I, I think there is something true about camaraderie. Um, the the thing about these teenagers in this movie is they are they're teenagers and they represent a time in life when the male brain isn't fully formed, and so they get up to mischief and hijinks and they handle th- themselves poorly a couple times. But these are not kids who are out to do evil so much as just have a good time, and uh, it, it they're a pleasant group to spend some time with. And it reminds me of how thankful I am for the friends that I grew up with. Yeah. Um, yeah, me too, man. What about what about fallenness here, Jared? I think fallenness. I think the argument is exactly what Andrew does. I think he represents fallenness. That if you don't take responsibility for your own actions, this is what it can lead to. Yeah, I think you're, you're probably. Bl- oh, go ahead. Sorry. When you're blaming others, um, you know, he he blames his father. Then he blames, um, you know, he blames his friend. He blames. Blames everyone except where the blame belongs, and I mean he do, he does have beef. He does have some legitimate argument against argue arguments. <laughs> uh, but I I think it's about taking responsibility, even as a young man, for your actions. Yeah, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna just go a slightly different direction. You referenced that comic book cliche that I think is most associated with Spider Man that with great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, another cliche that didn't originate in comics; it originated with Lord Acton. But I first met it in comic books is the idea that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think this movie portrays fallenness as the abuse of power, and that. Um, 
you see it in the family dynamics between the dad and, and Andrew. But then you see the way that as Andrew becomes empowered, he doesn't he doesn't do better things with his powers. He kind of he, he just kind of entertains himself and eventually rises to manipulating people to think he's this impressive stage magician um, and then turns into a, a full blown supervillain. And uh, it just seems like for him, the change in circumstance didn't uh, it didn't do anything so much as surface his own internal corruption. Mm-hmm. What about redemption? Is there a redemptive view uh, in 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 this material? I don't think there is redemption in this movie or glorification. I do. I do think we get a hint of it in um, you know the guy who survives. He is Andrew's cousin, and he's really the one character who shows consistent compassion towards Andrew in the movie. His he, his name is Matt, and the last thing we see is Matt completing Andrew's desire to go to Tibet and meet the the holy men who study in the mountains there. But he says right before he leaves the camera and leaves the shot, he says. I know you were a good person, Andrew, and I'm going to figure out what happened to us. And so this is a movie that ends overall on a very bleak note. But in the character of Matt, I think there is hope for, you know, the the events of the the movie playing out in a way that profits the world rather than, than harms it. So you think he was arguing that if Andrew didn't get this power, that he never would have become this psycho? Yeah, I think so. I think he's saying that he was corrupted by whatever that thing was they encountered in the ground that that empowered them. Now, that's a stretch, right? Because it didn't appear to be doing that to Michael B. Jordan's character, and it mm-hmm. it, it definitely didn't end up happening to Matt's. But he, I guess what I'm saying is Matt is holding out hope that even Andrew, as clearly someone who's become a bad guy, that there's good within him. It's, it's kind of Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader there, except mm-hmm. in this case, you know, there was no reconciliation before Andrew passed away as there was between Luke and Anakin. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's not much of a vision of glorification. You've just got Matt pressing on into the into the future to try and figure out what he can about the mysterious object that gave them their powers. So there's not there's not particularly a compelling vision of glorification in my read either, Jude. Mm. Uh, I guess that means we need to move into our analysis question. So, guys, we we try to chop everything up in our worldview section, which we just covered, and then we try to start putting it back together with some analysis questions. The first of those is, what's the story? We hope to get it right, and um, we hope we did that in the worldview analysis. Trust that we did. Second question is, where am I? See the style and shape of the imaginary world is the calling in this question. So, Jared, where are you at in the world of Chronicle? I guess I'm I guess I'm Matt, but I I enjoyed I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed the special effects. Um, one thing about the special effects or one plot hole in the movie, I thought was so they've got this uh, psychokinesis or telekinesis, and I understand the flying like they can make themselves fly. That's that's what I am I understanding that right. Like they're able to move objects with their mind, and so now now they're moving themselves through the air. Yes, and that is pretty original. Um, the the only other time I have seen that idea as the root of superpowers is in this comic book called Supreme that Alan Moore took over, and Supreme was clearly a Superman knockoff. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Alan Moore gets a hold of him, he starts asking analytical questions about where these powers come from, and he eventually hints that Supreme is a super powerful telepath and that he um, 
that's why he's able to like lift up a jetliner, for instance, without pushing a hole through it. It's because he's not just lifting it with his hand, but with his mind as well. And uh, those are the only two times I've seen seen those uh, seen superpowers presented as a product of just telepathic hmm. abilities. Well, that or telekinetic so, rather telekinetic. So Michael B. Jordan's character Steve gets struck by lightning, so he dies. Yeah. But later on in the movie, when Andrew and Matt are having that epic fight scene at the end, I mean they're they're breaking through buildings, they're breaking through uh, pavement, like they're they're getting slammed in the. They're they're just not a mark on them. They're not getting hurt at all. Like I didn't understand that part of it. Like, are they using the telekinesis to make them bulletproof, basically, almost like Superman? But then the very end. Um, Andrew gets killed by getting impaled, you know, like how I just thought that was a logical hole. Yeah, there actually is. There's a couple of times where they say, like, uh, I think the first time they do it in a diner, they they try to simulate an attack and whatever these powers are go into self-defense mode. Okay. And the only thing that I've got in terms of, you know, in my head of explaining how when when they're in the diner and he goes to stab him with the fork, the fork gets bent and won't touch Matt's skin. but then. Michael B. Jordan gets killed by lightning and, and Andrew gets stabbed is that they are not immune to each other. Oh, okay. So if one attacks the other, unless they're self-consciously resisting, they can kind of steal past each other's defenses. We we get some kind of hints that, that they're linked, right? So like when Andrew is having mm-hmm. his full meltdown at the end of the movie, Matt's nose begins to bleed. You remember right. that? And yeah. then when when right before Michael B. Jordan's character dies, which uh, I need to quick call him Michael B. Jordan's character. His name is Steve. Right before Steve dies, he goes to meet Andrew in the clouds. And Andrew is up there having uh, an emotional storm play out within himself as well. He's been he's been mm-hmm. in this conflict with his dad. He's up in the in the stratosphere as storm clouds gather around. And I think that storm was a product of his powers. I don't think it was a naturally occurring thunderstorm. Okay. And I think as he's there in conflict with Steve, either the lightning was, you know, subconsciously or consciously Andrew lashing out at Steve. And I think at least my head cannon is going to be that because it originated in the same thing that gave each other powers, they weren't they weren't protected from it. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. And I, I gathered I gathered the linked part. And I, I even thought that when Steve died, that the other two became more powerful, like they somehow inherited his or um, got his power. Yeah, that may be the case. That may be the case. I hadn't thought about that one. Uh, to, but, to uh, get back to ahead. that question, that, that's all I was going to, I was going to steer us back to that. Okay, yeah. Um, I enjoyed all the special effects. Like you were talking about a real superhero movie. It looks like... I don't know. It looks like teenagers flying around. It looks like exactly what teens would do if they all of a sudden had these powers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, when they were flying through the sky, I was thinking, man, I wouldn't do that. I, w- I would wait a little while. <laughs> like me, you know, 37-year-old Jared looking at teenagers, you know, 20-something years ago and thinking, you know, if a grown man getting that type of power, I would I would fly like 10 feet <laughs> or maybe five feet off the ground for a long time before I kept going higher and higher and higher. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think teenager Jared would have though. I I uh I know teenager Jared, and I remember going to <laughs> high cliffs for you to jump off into the waters below late at night, and so I think you would have been a bit more risky at the same stage of development as these guys. Oh man, God has been merciful to me, man. He really has. I mean, 
so many stupid things that I did like that. We did it at nighttime. We couldn't even see the water. Or the rocks. Yeah. Couldn't see anything. I mean, yeah. you couldn't have even seen a broken beer bottle when you walked out to the cliff edge. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. Uh, I made I made, I made made our other buddy, our younger buddy, go first, though. <laughs> <laughs> real, real brave and noble of you there. I get it. Uh, I say that as a coward who didn't jump that night. So. <laughs> Oh me. But uh yeah, I thought I thought the special effects were amazing and um I mean everything, even the story. I I don't think I didn't think that anything really needed to be cut out. I thought the character development was really well done and uh I love coming of age movies and again they they nailed it. Um Matt's character though is who I most resonated with. He's he's wanting to put the brakes on these powers. He's realizing um how much responsibility he has because he has these powers and what they need to do with them and what they don't need to do with them. And um and and then assuming the best, uh, like you said, I think he loved his cousin. I think he loved Andrew and he was very reluctant um to take his life. Yeah. Um, I, I'm with you in just enjoying these guys and where I'm at is happy to be one of the cameras that Andrew is using to record all their exploits. I'm just happy to be along on this fantastical journey uh, where these guys develop incredible powers. I would have done exactly what they did. I would have flown to the nearest city anytime I wanted. I would have had lunch at the top of the tallest building. You know, it was just fun to get to live in that escapist fantasy for a while. And so that... That's where I am. Just happy to be one of the cameras. Um, Jared, what's good, true, and awesome here? Where, where do we see common grace? I think uh, Andrew's love for his mama. I think even the daddy's love for his mama. I mean, for his wife. Um, I think how he felt being bullied and the, the real temptation that when you have power or the ability to become the bully, the real danger that's there um, to become what hurts you and and basically has taken something from you to to i guess the desire for revenge um all that's good showing that and they showed it as bad they showed it as evil and i i think that's good that can basically destroy you to where the good is tamped down so much um that it can change your your personality or your i don't know man it's when you oh what is it what's that famous line you stare into the abyss, and the abyss stares back at at you. You, you probably yeah. you know the source of that, yeah. don't you? Uh, actually, I don't know the the source off the top of my head, but that's that's a famous cliche, and yeah, it really applies in this one. Um, but I, I thought that was good. I thought uh, again, Matt's love for his cousin. I thought uh, Steve's love for Andrew as well. I mean, there was a real familial relationship, like your best buds in high school, you know. And in and th- those years are so weird that you feel closer. We've I felt closer to you guys than I did my parents. Mm-hmm. And I had good parents, right? You know, who cared and wanted to be involved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you guys were my, you know, for for good or for ill. Um, you guys are my family in many ways, and um, yeah, I, I think they captured all that, and that I think that's good. It is good. We, I think we do need friends. We do need, and we need close friends now. But I think this movie also shows that we need good parents, that teenagers need adult guidance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to point to something maybe a little bit more obscure in this. I feel like we live in a moment where we we want to tell ourselves that distinctions between people, uh, particularly distinctions in power or ability, are something that can be eradicated. And so if there's some disparity between 
you know, the amount of weight the female body can lift to reference something we were talking about earlier versus the male that, that we can work hard and overcome that. And we should overcome that. Mm. Or if there's one group who has greater power than another another group, then we should we should either balance those scales where they're both equal or we should you know reverse the order so that basically a different ruling class can have their moment in the sun. And Chronicle really understands that the problem is not with distinctions, that those are they're just a natural consequence of the way God has made his world, that there are some people who have abilities that others don't and vice versa, that there are seasons where one group may have greater influence or power. Uh, and while sometimes those are the product of wicked oppression and, and things like that, that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. And really, the issue is, what does one do? with the power you do have. And mm-hmm. so with Andrew, you know, he he's the test case for this and his his control is Stephen and Matt. And so Matt gets power and remains uh, someone on a trajectory towards basically becoming a more upright person, mm-hmm. believes the best, uses his abilities towards positive ends, uh, tries to improve himself through study and, and whatnot. Uh, Steve's character is sadly cut off, but we see him, you know, he says in the diner at one point that he's not good at everything, but he does try to do his best at everything he attempts. Mm-hmm. And you see him sort of walking along that, but he's growing as a person too. So he's Mr. Popularity, but he befriends Andrew, who is a social outcast. Um, Andrew, however, takes a different course. And when he has the ability to improve his circumstances, he just becomes the same kind of monster his dad or the school bullies are. And so, you know, Chronicles reminds us there's going to be natural distinctions between people, inability, societal power, whatnot. Those are not nearly so bad as what's in the fallen human heart. And if we're going to address the problems facing humanity will be much better uh, prepared, will be much more fruitful if we prepare to, to address the human heart rather than the, the kind of naturally occurring distinctions that are just baked into God's world. Mm. Yeah, I think those are all good points, brother. We do live in a time. I, if this movie came out, uh, you know, if it's, this movie came out last week, I would wonder if Andrew represented like a toxic masculinity, um, like this is what happens if, uh, but, uh, but because it came out when it did, I don't think, I don't think that was even on their mind. Yeah. Different categories, right? Different categories. Um, okay. Well then Jared, what is distorted evil false? How do we subvert idolatry uh, as we watch this movie? I assume the, the idol is that you, you know, Kind of be, be good for goodness sake type thing. Can you um, say that one more time? I got some digital static there, and I want to make sure I understood you. I assume it, it's kind of moralism, be good for goodness sake. Mm. Um, like you were talking about being up, upstanding, right? Good citizen, good person. Uh, there's not really objective reasons or no reference. There's no reference to God that I'm aware of in this in this movie. No, I mean there's no there's sort of an no appeal even to kind of attaining winking God at good. the camera. Sorry, I think we were talking over each other there for a minute. Yeah, um, there's this nod towards attaining godhood, right? That these guys have become, uh, I guess, transhuman. They've they've surpassed humans humanity's restrictions. Um, but yeah, no, nothing to like a Judeo Christian or, or a theistic view of God. Right, and so I would think that the idol is that if you 
you know, that you can reach this on your own, like that you can attain, um, I don't know if salvation is the right word, but just be good for goodness sake, be a good person, do what's right, and you'll be good to go. But the thing is, we can't, you know, if there's a, a critique of this movie, it's that they're soft on what teenage boys would really do with these powers. Um, I mean, Jeff, you know, in our in our sinful days of being teenagers, teenage boys with these types of powers, in most cases, would not use it for good, um, I believe. What, what do you think the, the idol is? Well, I do think you're on to it when you say that it's it's this idea that morality is simply found in, in trying to be a good person and uh, and and believe the best about people and press on. I mean, that's the vision of goodness that we're left up, left with with Matt, um, because he's you know, he's still believing the best about Andrew and he's going to press on to to gain greater knowledge. You don't ever really have a time where this movie just straight up says Andrew is an evil person and he became an evil person by his own choosing. Um, watching this with my wife, she, mm-hmm. you know, we're driving to town and talking about the movie the next day. And she said, that was just such a sad movie because of what happened to, to Andrew and how there was no redemption available for him. And I told her that I just couldn't feel sad for him because of the choices he made. I, mm-hmm. I get that hurt people hurt people. And my wife, who's much more empathetic and uh, compassionate than I am, uh, I'm not surprised she picked up on it. But for me, you know, being abused, the only route that's available to you is not becoming an abuser. You know, the people who who know what it's like to be hurt by an abuser are the people who are best prepared to to avoid abuse in their own life because they know the sting of it. And I'm thankful that I can point to numerous people in my life mm-hmm. who as children were abused and by God's grace chose a different course. They 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 saw what damage it brought into their life and they chose a different course so that they didn't do that to other people. And Andrew had that opportunity. He had that opportunity in spades, but he he rejects Steve's friendship and ends up costing him his life. He rejects confessing what had happened to Matt. He you know, he chooses to respond to his father with the same kind of abuse that his father had dole, doled out to him. And you just see the degenerating effects of sin there. He he chose his course. He he chose not to be a good person in whatever qualified civic sense of that word we can use. And he basically reaped the fruit of those choices. So I don't see it as sad. I see it in some ways as a bleak picture of what justly needed to happen. So I don't know if it's mm-hmm. quite an I don't know if it's quite an idol, but yeah. it's a falsehood. Yeah. Well, Jared, I guess the the remaining question is the most important one. How does the gospel apply as we think about the movie Chronicle? So I think the gospel applies for Christians concerning seeking redemption instead of revenge, instead of being like Andrew, we need to be like Matt. Um, so we need to seek the redemption of not only ourselves, but also others. And that's only found through Christ. And so the desire for revenge is real. I mean, these are three kids, right? Three teenagers that get these amazing powers. And so how are they going to use them? You've got Andrew wanting to use it for revenge. And, um, you know, what we must do when we're seeking justice is we we cannot seek revenge. God, God actually says that we... Um, he he is oh man I'm gonna butcher the text. Um, well, vengeance is mine; I will repay. Thus saith the Lord. And um, so 
if vengeance is his, it's not ours. And so we must go through the channels that he is he is given, uh, which is the, the government. We must appeal to the government to do its job in punishing evildoers. But our responsibility as Christians is to seek reconciliation uh, with the world and to seek the redemption of the world by pursuing people with the gospel. God God uses the proclamation of the gospel to call out his elect to save uh, lost sinners. And so we must take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so I, I think the, the gospel applies. And the reason why, um, well, the world that God is creating is better than the world offered here in this movie is that there is redemption for even even those like Andrew, even the most heinous evil people in the world, um, God can surely save, and the gospel is, is freely offered to everyone. And all those who repent and believe in Christ will be saved eternally, will be forgiven, and will be treated as if as if they're not guilty, because in Christ they're not. Mm. And so that is very freeing. You know, I, I say that I'm like Matt, or I want to be like Matt in this movie, but the truth is I'm like Andrew, you know, apart from Christ. Yeah, that's that's me too. The the only thing I'm going to add to what you said there, Jared, is for people thinking about how to talk to their neighbors about this movie. Um, I think this movie reminds us we shouldn't despise natural human limitations. God's framing of humanity with its limitations is a good thing. Uh, of course, there are times when we wish to, to have greater power to end abuse, to end oppression, to end wrong. I think it's it's fun to fantasize about having superpowers. Those things are healthy and okay, but when you look uh, into our cultural moment, you see people who talk meaningfully about using technology to transcend human limitations. Well, at that point, you've you've entered into full-blown rebellion against your creator. And I think this movie reminds us to be careful what you wish for. We, we mm-hmm. may daydream about flying through the clouds. That's fun. I, I get that. But once you seriously consider surpassing human limitations, you've you've now in a lot of ways repeated the error of Adam and Eve in the garden. And that may play out just as destructively for us as it did for our original parents. Not so much in condemning all of creation into sin, but that it may bring us to the end of our lives and may it may lessen human flourishing rather than heighten it. And so we do need uh in some ways, we can authentically say we do need a greater power to fix the wrongs of this world. We have that in Christ. Mm-hmm. We should not then be seeking to appropriate power to ourselves beyond human limitations in order to fix what's wrong with a broken world. We had that in the God man. He's better at being God, Savior, Lord than we are. And where we attempt to bring those things under our own control, our own power, I think we're going to find that project to ultimately lead to destruction. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the only thing I would add, one final question, Jeff, is, you know, this movie makes me wonder about the new heavens and new earth and uh, the resurrection body that we're going to receive, like Christ's resurrection body. Mm-hmm. And because you, you, I think you and I agree that there are distinctions about his resurrection body that are different than his, um, I guess, pre-resurrection body, that there are like him being able to get into locked rooms and, and things along that line. I don't know. What do you think about the resurrection body? What are th- are there going to be things that we can do in the new heavens and new earth that are beyond what Adam could do in the garden? I think it's on the table. I'm hesitant to go there. I assume that um, I assume that at any point in history that God needed someone to show up in a locked room, He'd be able to do that through supernatural uh, suspension of natural laws. But it could be a feature of the divine, excuse me, of the resurrection body and not just the divine will uh, in, in a moment of supernatural activity. I know I know Christ's resurrected body 
was similar enough to his pre-resurrection body that he ate, and then he had scars from the wounds that he suffered. Beyond that, I have a hard time speculating, but Mm. I will not be surprised if the human body doesn't have increased capacity when it's not suffering the effects of the fall. Mm. Something, I I don't know, I wonder, like, thinking through the image of God and having dominion and and thinking through at least the the functional aspect of, you know, having having dominion over all creation. And I'm just I'm just curious. I wonder if that, you know, if Christ, you know, he's the par excellence, the image of God and him having control over the elements, um, not 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 mere dominion over the animals, but having dominion over, well, all the elements of creation. Um, and I, I don't know, I wonder about his ascension, him being able to ascend I mean, he's God the Son incarnate, um, but we are in him and we're receiving bodies like his. And so the question comes if, I mean, I, I was thinking about the flying thing, you know, him him being able to fly. And, he, and it appears that he's going to fly on the way back or riding on the clouds, right? Yeah, we'll rise to meet him. So we'll have some semblance of the experience of flying. Yeah, I mean, see, that is so cool to think through. And, and I think Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, makes that argument somewhat as far as you know, being able to explore the cosmos and and uh, for for all eternity, and you think of the galaxies far, far away, and I don't know. It's just uh, it's cool to think through, man, because it is a new heavens and new earth, and what we do on earth. So it's not just one long worship. Well, it is one long worship service, but you're worshiping God as you enjoy His provisions. And so you're doing all things for the glory of God. I, I assume that there'll be times of corporate worship that are distinct from what we do in our everyday lives. But I also assume that in our everyday lives will be acts of worship as we care for creation and we we enjoy um, learning from one another. And I don't know. I, I just I look forward to that day, man. Yes. Amen. All right, Jerry. We'll put a bow on this one. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Where can our listeners find you, Jared, outside of the world of Pop Culture Cormdale? Hey, you can find me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore. You can find me on Facebook at All Truth is God's Truth. I've actually got a uh, another podcast called All Truth is God's Truth. Now, I hadn't touched that thing in about a year, but there are, I think, about 12 episodes on there, and I hope to get to that again this year. i got to finish my dissertation, and uh, once I get that done, i hopefully have more time um, for that and some more uh, Pop Culture Quorum Deo uh, episodes. Hopefully, we'll be producing double. And speaking of producing more, you are you've got a couple of things posted on the Monergism blog connected to yeah, pop culture. Yeah, yeah. Check out the Monergism blog. I'm a regular contributor there now. Actually, Jeff and I both are. And uh, Jeff hasn't been able to post anything yet, but uh, you know, probably this month, uh, Jeff and I both will have some items on there. So check it out. Here, here. I'm at Right Jeff on most social media platforms. We are at PCCD Pod on social media platforms. And guys, if you're listening, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We also love to connect with you in our Facebook group, the Pop Culture Quorum Deo Podcast, Perpetual After Party. Long name, but a great reason to visit Facebook. You can find a link to that on our Facebook page, which again is at the uh, the aforementioned PCCD Pod. Uh, descriptor. And again, that's that's a place we would love to to put a face with a name and and get your feedback on what you're hearing from the podcast. So if you're on Facebook, check us out there. Drop us a five-star review if you can. And uh, yeah, we're, we're just thankful for our listeners. Want to connect with you guys more regularly. Uh, Jared, what's up on the docket for the next episode? Um, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to see that uh, that Angel movie. Uh, Alita? Alita? 
Yeah, it look. I, I mean, it looks weird, but you know, man, I was I, so I took my son to see Aquaman just today before we recorded. I got home a little bit before I hit record on this thing, and I saw that preview and I thought, who in the world is this movie appealing to? And I now I know my buddy Jared. <laughs> That's right, man. I mean, I think the name is goofy. Yeah, but you know, I'd like to. I'd like to see that. Uh, what What is coming out this Thursday? I want to say there's a horror movie like The Prodigy or something like that. We'll have to check it out. Um, Guys, we will finalize this off the air and we will get back to you on whether or not we're watching Alita the Goggle-Eyed Angel or (laughs) Prodigy Scary Stuff. Thanks again for listening. We appreciate you tuning in. And guys, we want to remind you to live every moment as if you are before the face of God because you are. Talk to you next time. 